normally are. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm glad to have the opportunity, especially for me. Uh, it was something I did a lot back in the day, but now as, I, as I'm here as a music minister, I don't quite have the opportunity to exercise that muscle. So when it does, uh, does come my way, I am excited to kind of uh, do that. So this morning we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there to Joshua chapter 8. At the bottom of chapter 8, uh, we're going to start in verse 30. But for us, I think it's important to kind of lay the foundation to help understand exactly what is happening here. And we've been doing a great job. Have you all been enjoying this kind of series, Better Together, through Joshua so far? I, I have really been enjoying it. Um, I've really been enjoying a look at this again, and even though I, you know, I've been through seminary, I've been doing, done a lot of that and studied through the book of Joshua again, I love just that renewal aspect. I love that the Word of God is fresh. No matter how many times you come to it, you will get something new out of it, and I love that. And so um, that's just the Word of God in all of its power. So this morning, in, in kind of saying the context of the passage we're about to read, we understand what has happened. You probably reviewed some of that in your Bible study group this morning. That basically the, the, the nation of Israel is coming off of two, two kind of things here. We're coming off of a, a tragic defeat, and then we're also coming off of a, a triumph. Okay? We're, ha- we're coming off of this kind of punishment of sin to then coming off of what happens when you fulfill what God has told you. You, give him, you fulfill the commands that God has given you. And so we're really setting the scene here for for this kind of unusual moment. It's, it's very kind of unique what happens here because it's set in a place that, that's, that's kind of far away, and I'll get to that in just a second. <clears throat> but what I, what I think is interesting is that it is, again, a reminder of Joshua to the people by following a command of Moses here that he is going to renew this covenant that God has established with his people. And really, is it that God wasn't going to hold up his end of the covenant? I find this interesting. Anytime that God kind of, or these sort of things happen where we have a renewal of something maybe we've committed to, it isn't really for God, okay? Because God's going to hold up his part. This, this renewal is really about us reminding our heart of who God is and what he promised that he would do. And so that's what we're going to find in this passage. Uh, so let's stand and read this together in Joshua chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 30. Let's read through this together. And then we'll take a look at what God has for us this morning. So Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 says, At the time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings uh, to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all of Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, and all the elders and the officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all of the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Blessed be God's word. You may have a seat. Let's pray quickly.
Father, I pray this morning as we look at this time of recommitment and renewal. Lord, as God, you brought a remembrance, a time of remembrance to this nation that you helped form. Lord, you brought to them, uh, to this moment that seemingly is kind of out of the way. You brought them to a specific place for a specific purpose and for a specific reason. And Lord, I reminded my own heart that you do the same for us. God, sometimes you bring us to places of difficulty. Lord, to remind us of how great you are. Lord, you, you bring us through times of change to remind us of how constant you are. Lord, I pray that this morning as we read through this passage and, and consider what it might have for us, Lord, you would remind us in our hearts that you are great and that you are to be trusted. And Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, recently, I, I got to kind of take a look at a, at a movie um, that really kind of stuck out in my mind. Any of you probably have heard about it. It got a lot of press. It's called Free Solo. Anybody seen that movie called Free Solo? Ever heard, heard about the movie called Free Solo? Well, basically, I've watched a couple documentaries of it, seen parts of the movie, haven't quite seen the whole thing, but basically, uh, the, the movie wraps itself around the idea, there's the rock climber, it's a true story, it's a documentary, it's not like a, uh, a movie that, that's uh, fictional, it's a true story <clears throat> about a rock climber named Alex uh, Honnold, who seeks to be the first person to climb El Capitan, which is a 3,000 foot vertical face, rock face, okay, in Yosemite National Park. He, he wants to be the first one to do that, which is not unusual. People climb that all the time, but he wants to be the first one to do it without any ropes or with any help of any kind. So he wants to be the first one to do this with just his bare hands, his feet, without any safety net to climb 3,000 feet straight up. No one has ever done that. People have tried and failed and died. But he wants to be the first one. So there is, there's this buildup. There's this buildup in this, in this movie that he's going to attempt something that, that is just unbelievable. And what's amazing is that you know, he's, he's prepping for it. He's training for it. He's, he's getting himself ready to accomplish what seems to be uh, an unaccomplishable task. And it, it's not hard. It, it's easy to get gripped by kind of just this death-defying premise behind this movie. Because if he makes one mistake, one He's dead. If, if his hands just slip in the, in the wrong place, and, and I don't know about you, but I'm not necessarily the most coordinated person, and, and like I can barely walk on this carpet without tripping and falling all over myself, much less climb up 3,000 feet and, and, and do it without making a mistake. And one of the cool things I loved about this movie was actually watched kind of the making of the movie, and that was almost just as exciting as the movie itself because it showed how, <clears throat> how like, how do you even document something like this like you're sitting there watching this and and what if he slips and falls you're going to document his his death and so even the filmmakers themselves were just incredibly nervous now they were they were repelling from the the top of the rock face and they were using drones without without trying to interfere with what he was doing because they did not want to be the cause of of him falling to his death and and i have to admit you know that when i watch a movie like this and spoiler alert, he makes it to the top. Okay, I'll let you know that. Uh, and, and if you didn't see anything on the news about it a couple months back, uh, you know, he, do, he does make it to the top, and it's just a phenomenal thing. And so now he's probably spawned a lot of other people who <laughs> probably are going to try the same thing and unfortunately not, not make it. Um, but what, when I watch a movie like that, one of, one of the things, I, I get inspired. 
Like I get inspired, like here's someone who is training to accomplish an, an, basically for me an unaccomplishable task. I, I can never, never, even if I started training now, I probably could never accomplish what he has accomplished. He has trained his life, uh, his entire life for this thing that he wanted to accomplish. He's an expert rock climber who, who he talks about in the movie how he went over this, this certain route, like just hundreds of times just going through this route. So he knew every square inch of exactly where to put his hands and exactly where to put his feet. And there are some things that are, that are so tricky that basically he's holding on by just by the tips of his fingers without any ropes or without any help of any kind. So I watched this, this movie, and, and it's amazing to me to see something like that. It makes me want to go and accomplish something great. It makes me want to go out there, and we don't have, I never was into rock climbing. We don't have mountains in Florida. I'm not sure what the Florida equivalent to that would be. Uh, but it makes me want to go out and try to accomplish something fantastic. But while I have that feeling, I also have kind of the opposite feeling of knowing that I would never, never measure up like I never could really truly accomplish this so while I have this feeling of inspiration I have this kind of other feeling over here of I'll never actually ever do that and so I kind of find myself my my true feelings here kind of in the middle they're kind of I kind of find myself here stuck in the middle of of both of those feelings of saying man I want to go do something but I don't really think I can And, and yet if I don't try I never never would even get close and I think what's interesting about this passage is we have an illustration here. And I think we can all identify with it. When, when sometimes we read our Bible, we see the amazing things that God has done. And man, just like this guy climbing El Capitan, it sets the bar high. When we look at Jesus, I mean, there is no higher bar. Okay, the way that he, is, he, he talked with people, the way that he interacted with people, there is no higher bar. And we look to that, that example that he set there, and we get inspiration from that. And I, I think just in a similar way, we read about the disciples, and, and we're no better than they are, okay, who, who failed time and time again and just didn't get it. And, and knowing that they are there physically present with Jesus, okay, with God in flesh, and yet somehow they're not really able to measure up with that. And I think spiritually when we read our Bible, sometimes we can find ourselves in a similar way of that kind of in-between, like, I know what I need to do, but yet I know that I won't really be able to do that. And so we kind of find ourselves stuck in the middle. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm keenly aware of my own failures. I'm keenly aware of my own limitations, so I live in this tension of what could be, of this struggle to try to become all that God wants me to be, but in a way being held back by my own sinfulness and failures. So in Joshua chapter 8, Joshua goes to renew this covenant. He goes to remind the nation of Israel what God has promised them. So let's look together in verse 30 again. It says, And at this time Joshua built an altar... To the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, which upon no man has wielded any iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Well, the first thing that's interesting about this passage is you have this thing where it talks about Joshua built an altar to the Lord. 
which is not unusual. He built an altar before, after they crossed over the Jordan River. But here we have this thing where, where Joshua builds an altar, and it gives us a little bit of information. It says, on Mount Ebal. And, and while that might not seem important, and this week I, I just totally, I was totally on Google Maps and checking everything out on Google Maps. You should totally do this. You'll notice that Mount Ebal is not close to where they were. Okay, it's not close to Ai. It's not close to where they were camped out. As a matter of fact, it's like 20 miles north. So it is completely out of the way. So Joshua takes the whole nation, because it talks about everyone being there. He takes the whole nation, and he takes them 20 miles north. And it wasn't like they had to hack through the wilderness. There's just one like beautiful valley that leads right up to where they're going. It's just a perfect highway uh, where, where nations would come and go through there. So it's, it's really interesting to look at on, on Google Maps. Another thing that's interesting about this area is... is and you can see this too, so I really want to encourage you to go to Google Maps when we get done, is you can see like there, between these two mountains, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, there's, there's this little shape there. It's known for this kind of like double amphitheater. It's really unique, this kind of geological uh, feature where on one side uh, you, have, you have Mount Ebal, which is the one on the north. You kind of have this little dome-shaped little amphitheater. And then directly across from it on, on, on Mount Ebal, you have this, uh, on Mount Gerizim, you have this little the opposite. They're exactly right across from each other. And it's known, and, and we, we say mountains here, but we're not talking about, you know, huge rocky mountains. We're talking about mountains that, that are, are large, but not, not huge. And so this valley in between them is not a massive valley. It really just kind of comes down to this point. It's not a small, it's a small area in between these two mountains, but yet it has this unique feature that if somebody were to actually read or shout loudly, you can hear it on both sides of the mountain. So knowing that this was there, and by the command of Moses, Joshua takes the people up there to it. So in this passage, basically four significant things happen. One of those is that Joshua, kind of in fulfillment of the commands of Moses, sets up an altar on Mount Ebal. In turn, the people offer sacrifices of different type. They offer burnt burnt, uh, sacrifices, which means they consume the entire animal. They um, They offer peace sacrifices, which is basically that they get the opportunity not necessarily to give the entire animal. It's kind of like a fellowship thing with God. So they offer these sacrifices. Then Joshua does something interesting is he copies the law of Moses on the stones. Now you're like, how do you do that back in that day? Well, it's actually kind of interesting, and actually the Bible tells us. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses gives them this command. It says, now Moses, and you can look at it on the screen, uh, Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 8, it says, now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land, that the Lord your God is giving you shall set up a large stones and plaster them with plaster. So it helps you to understand this idea when Joshua's writing on these, on these stones that they have set up with an altar, he takes plaster and then he writes in the plaster and it dries. And it stands as a, as a testament to the, to the law. And the law that it's referring to here is talking about the Ten Commandments. So he takes this, this altar and he writes on it the the, the, the Ten Commandments that are there, and then the people give uh, and sacrifice these animals there. Another thing that's interesting that happens here is that Joshua then in turn, after he does these things, reads the whole law to all the people as they're surrounding him. 
Well, this area, if you were to rewind a little bit, is an area that Abraham came through. As a matter of fact, it tells us in Genesis chapter 12 that as Abraham came through this area, uh, it was a town there called Shechem, and he's there, and at the time of the Canaanites were in the land, it says the Lord appeared to Abram. And he gives him this promise. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham coming through this, hundreds of years before this, had come and offered a sacrifice to the Lord here. Now currently, while it was a far, a far sorts of way, uh, 20 miles away of where they were, it, it happens to be in this place where there, there's this valley, and then there's also these things that are interesting that are surrounding it. Because if you were to uh, also kind of rewind a little bit, you would notice that there's this thing there called Jacob's Well. Right in that same area, there's, there's, this, there's a well that was supposedly dug by Jacob that has a lot of relevance in the New Testament. And we'll get to that in just a second. But as Joshua, back in verse 30, built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal, and that's the, that's the, the mountain to the north, and then Mount Gerizim is the one to the south. Joshua builds this altar, And as I was reading through just tons of commentaries this week, it started to paint a picture to me that I thought was really interesting. And it was, as you read this story, you have have this one mountain to the south, Mount Gerizim. You have Mount Ebal, this mountain to the the north. And as as Joshua reads the law, it, it says specifically that he's reading the blessings and the cursings. So he's not just reading the good stuff, okay? He's reading the good and the bad. So basically what they think and what most of them agree that, that probably at one mountain, mostly, most likely Mount Ebal, he was reading the cursing. Okay? And then towards the other mountain and towards the other group, he was, he was reading the blessings of God. And so you kind of have this thing where he's reading back and forth to these different groups. And this one group over here is kind of getting all the bad stuff. And this one group over here is kind of getting all the good stuff. What's amazing is that when you read about all the, the, the things that God was doing there among the people, and he's reading uh, all the cursings, that if you do this, and we're going to read some of those in just a second, in the midst of that, you have these people who are receiving these curses. Above them at the top is an altar. An altar where sacrifice was made. And then if you were to go the other way and you look down this way, you're, you're saying the blessings here. And if you were to go to the top of, of Mount Gerizim, you could a long ways off see Jerusalem. And so there's this picture of kind of Mount, Mount Ebal being uh, the mountain of cursing. Mount Gerizim being the mountain of blessing, a mountain of hope. Mount Ebal being the place where the altar was. And it was the place where the law of God, the perfect law of God was written. And I find myself, when I started to read this passage and read through this, like, what would that have been like? What would that have been like to be there in that day and hear these blessings and and cursings being said to me? How would that have made me feel? Well, real quickly, what I want us to do is turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want us to read some of these together. Chapter 28. (laughs) In Deuteronomy 28, we have a perfect example 
of what most likely was read during this time. Now I'm going to read out a little different version here, but you can follow along in yours. It says, Now, if you'll be careful to obey the Lord your God and follow his commands, that I tell you today, the Lord your God will put you high above the nations of the earth. If you will obey the Lord your God, all these blessings will come to you and be yours. So it goes on to start. It says, He will bless you in the city and in the field. He will bless you and give you many children. He will bless your lands and give you good crops. He will bless your animals and let them have many babies. He will bless you with calves and lambs. He will bless your your baskets and pans and fill them with food. He will bless you at all times in everything that you do. Man, that makes me feel so good when I hear that. I think God, his desire is to help me. And he goes on to say in verse 7, The Lord will help you defeat your enemies who come to fight against you. Your enemies will come against you one way, but then they will run away from you seven different ways. The Lord will bless you and fill your barns, and he will bless everything you do. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that he is giving you. If you follow the Lord your God and obey his commands, he will do what he promised. The Lord will make you his own special people. Then all the people in that land will see that you are called to be the Lord's people, and they will be afraid of you. And the Lord will give you many good things. He will give you many children. He will give you your cows, many calves. He will give you a good harvest in the land that the Lord promised your ancestors. The Lord will open his storehouses where he keeps his rich blessings. And he will send rain at the right time for your land. He will bless everything you do. And you will have money to lend to many nations. And you will not need to borrow anything from them. And the Lord will make you like... Uh, like the head, not the tail. You will be on top and not the bottom. This will happen to you if you listen to the commands of the Lord your God that I tell you today. You must carefully obey these commands. You must not turn away from any of your teachings that I give you today. You must not turn away from them to the right or to the left. You must not follow other gods or serve them. So as I think about that passage there, and I think about how this one group is hearing these blessings of God, And probably their heart is swelling. We're like, God is for us. God is going to do great things with us. All we have to do is is try to obey him. And in a similar way, I kind of feel like that that inspiration was probably there. When you watch something, you're just so excited. Like, man, I want to go out and do that. I want to go out and try that. I want want to go out there and do and and have all these things that God wants for us. And, And what I find is interesting is that's not the whole law of God. I think it's real easy in some churches today that that might be the only message that you hear. And that's a tragedy. Because that's not all that God says. And for us, we have to listen to the bad. We have to listen to both. Because it's only in that context do we understand who we are. Do we understand our own failures and our own problems and our own issues. That we understand how far Fall, we fall short of God's standard. So in the next verses, it goes on to say, the same chapter, but if you do not listen to what the Lord your God tells you, if you do not obey all his commands and laws that I tell you today, then all these bad things will happen to you. In a very opposite way, it says the Lord will curse you 
in the city and in the field. He will curse you with empty baskets and pans. He will curse you and you will not have many children. He will curse your land and you will not have good crops. He will curse your animals and they will not have many babies. He will curse your calves and lambs. He will curse you at all times and everything you do. And we could stop there and save ourselves some pain, but I think we should keep reading. It goes on in verse 20, it says, if you, do not, if you do evil and turn away from the Lord, he will make bad things happen to you. You will have frustration and trouble in everything you do. He will continue to do this until you are quickly and completely destroyed. He will do this because you have turned away from him uh, and left him. The Lord will send you terrible diseases until you no longer exist, until you are completely gone from the land. The Lord will punish you with diseases, fever, and swelling. You will send, uh, he will send you terrible heat, and you will have no rain. Your crops will die from disease. All these bad things will happen until you are destroyed. There will be no clouds in the sky. The sky will look like polished brass, and the ground under you will be like hard iron. The Lord will not send rain. Only sand and dust will fall from the sky, and it will come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will let your enemies defeat you and will not fight against your enemies one way, but you will run away from them seven different ways. The bad things that happen to you will make all the, earth, all the people on earth afraid. Your dead bodies will be food for the wild birds and animals. There will be no one to scare them away from your dead bodies. So I read that passage and I think to myself, at the same time you've got these people over hearing the blessings and the great things that God has in store for them. Over here, you've got these other people listening to all the terrible things God is going to do if they don't obey. What I find interesting about this place is that while you have these, these mountains, you have, you have Mount Ebal, this kind of mountain of cursing, and you have Mount Gerizim, this mountain of blessing, and then you have this, this sacrificial altar up there on the top, you have this picture that's painted. Sometimes we fall into this trap of that we are never going to measure up. And the reality is, that is true. You will never measure up. But the reality is, just like on top of that mountain, there is a sacrifice that was paid. And, and I say that because sometimes I think God comes across here as being very right and wrong. And He is. In his justice and in his, in his holiness, he is. But yet at the same time, God knows. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that because here you have these mountains and these, these commentaries that I read this week talk so much about these mountains. But yet what, where are the people? They're in the valley. They find themselves somehow caught in between these two things, this expectation of holiness, of all the goodness that God has, but yet somehow caught on the other side of understanding the failures and knowing that they're never going to measure up. And so you have this, this attitude here, I'm sure that would kind of rise up within you in the same way of, man, I want those blessings, but I know that I'm not ever going to really see them. And I find myself caught in that constant tension all the time when I read God's word. And, and so as we have this, this thing called the valley, I want to point out something real important to you. <laughs> it just kind of almost one of those things as I read this just kind of skipped over my mind. 
And it's this. Where do we find God in this picture? Where do we find the ark, the presence of the Lord? He's not on either one of those mountains. He's down in the valley with his people. His presence isn't one on top of this mountain, somehow setting an example that he knows we're never going to measure up to, or in this mountain standing in judgment of everyone. Rather, he's with his people. His presence there in the valley, because basically the, the Levites and Joshua were there with the ark in the center, and then you had these two groups just kind of off to the side, and this isn't a large space. They're all there together. And one of my favorite parts about this passage, one of my favorite parts about this passage is it talks about all the people. It talks about all the people being gathered there. And it lists it off for us. It lists it off and it says not only were they the native-born, but also the sojourners. And these sojourners are, are foreigners. These are people who somehow, some way, have joined with the people of Israel and seen the things that God has done. And I'm sure Rahab and her family would have been part of that. So you have this, Joshua isn't just taking the, the mighty men of valor. He's not just taking the men. No, he's taking the men, the women, the children, the foreigners, everyone. He wants everyone to hear what God expects out of them. And as he renews this, it reminds me that oftentimes today we find ourselves in a place that God, as we are seeking to find our place in the the church or in, in the kingdom of God, we see that God gathers people of all different types. He gathers some people who are strong. He gathers some people who are weak. He gathers people that are young. He gathers people that are old. He gathers native people. He gathers foreigners. He gathers young and old and everyone in between. And I think as we gather here to get today, I think we can look around and find all those pictures, just as we would at the church. And, and I find it somewhat interesting that if we were to fast forward this whole scene, a couple thousand years, Jesus is here in this same area. Jesus is here and he's having a conversation <laughs> with a woman. Because what happens in that meantime is these foreigners, these kind of half-breed, half-Jewish mixed people move into this and it's called Samaria and the people, these, these Samaritan people, the Jews hate them. They despise them. They want to spit on them. They want to get rid of them. But yet Jesus and his sovereignty goes into the middle of this place. Not far, I mean, just probably like a mile from where they're, where they're even having this. And has this conversation at this well with this woman. And in the midst of that, he tells her something that he's never told his own people. That he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So he tells this woman with compromised morals something that he wouldn't even tell his own people. He invites her to be a part of the kingdom. So you have this picture from old and new. God's not doing something different, okay? God's not doing something different now that he didn't do then. This was his desire the entire time. It was not to create a a holy clique of people that somehow kept people out. No, it was to be an example and a light to the world of of who God is. 
So Jesus extends hope to this Samaritan woman. And her and her, her family, her friends, her relatives, she goes and tells all these people, and there's this great revival that breaks out in Samaria. And his disciples are, are like, how can this be? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Jews don't hang out with these people. No, G- Jesus, you should be for us. No, Jesus is for everyone. God is for everyone. So don't think that somehow just because you don't measure up, if, you're, if, you, if you maybe stand somewhere in that valley and maybe at different points of your life, maybe you're kind of, man, God's just really blessing my life. But there'll be other times in my life where, man, I'm, I'm kind of under the judgment. I want to remind you again that God is there in the midst of it all. He's not separated far away. He's there in the midst of it all with you. So as we find that, find that, that Ark of the Covenant there, very in the presence of the people there. And I'll go back to verse 34. It says, And afterwards he read the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according all that is written in the book of the law. This happens. This is not just a short little passage. He's reading it all. So you guys got a short little dose of what he probably read to them. Because there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. And the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So as we stand sometimes in our lives, we find our place in the middle. The middle caught in this way of knowing what God wants for me. Knowing the promises and the good things that he has for us. Yet knowing that we're never going to truly measure up. But the reality is for us. Okay, the reality is for us. If we didn't have those, we would never strive. We would never go after the things that God has for us. And he has blessings for us. And he has set that standard. And he has given us an example for what and, what and how we should live our life. And so we go after that and we strive and we do our best. And we work hard. But the whole time we can always look back and know that the times that we fail and the times that we falter... We can look and see a sacrifice was made. A sacrifice was made that covers us in our failure. And last thing I want to say this morning, um, I found some hope in. That while here on this earth we live in this tension of dealing with our flesh, dealing with the spirit, Paul has a lot to, to say about that. I was somewhat comforted um, by Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. Because what ends up happening is she kind of begins an argument with Jesus talking about this very mountain, because that's actually where the Samaritans would worship. And Jesus kind of stops her and says, you know, it really doesn't matter. And he starts out a conversation. He says, woman, in verse uh, 21 of verse, uh, chapter 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. He says, woman... Believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And this, <laughs> and this, this great grand idea that a time is coming when we will no longer have to struggle with our flesh. We will not have to be in the middle of knowing that we're never truly going to measure up, but rather we will exist in the presence and in the peace of God. I stand in constant desire of that day. I long for that day. I long that the kingdom of God would rule over this earth and we would be united with him. And that's something I look forward to. 
So there will be times in life where you will feel this tension more than others. There will be times when we know who we should be and we don't ever feel like we can measure up. There were times where the struggle that we find ourselves trying to, to do the things that God has commanded us to do and live in his blessings, we will fail. But there will also be a time where the struggle will eventually turn to peace when we come into the presence of Jesus. Until then, we do our best, knowing that there's a sacrifice for us. So I say to you this morning, that wherever you are in that valley, maybe you're more on the blessing side or maybe you're more on the cursing side or maybe you're not sure exactly where your relationship with God stands, know that he is with you, that he is for you, that he loves you and that he cares for you, that he knows it's a struggle, but he has made a sacrifice for you. And simply put, for us, If it wasn't for that sacrifice, we would be utterly hopeless. There would be no blessings at all. It would all be cursing. But as we stand here, we have the opportunity to partake in the blessings of God through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. If you've never experienced that, if you've never experienced the good things that God has for you, the peace that He can bring to your heart, even in the midst of the struggle, you need that. You need to have that relationship with God. Repenting of your sin, believing in Him, trusting in Him to be your Savior. And He'll change you from the inside out. So I pray this morning as we have a time of response that that you would consider these things. That you would consider where you are and if there's some way you need to to repent of something or you need to kind of get your, your walk right with the Lord that you would respond in that way. But also that if you would desire to have a relationship with God. Maybe you're coming here and you're hearing these words and maybe you find yourself in the tension of knowing what God wants you to do. Respond. I can't ever say that enough. Like, like I know our pride, our flesh is what's holding you back. It's what's going to keep you from surrendering your life to Christ. It's not going to push you to do it. It's going to keep you from doing that. So I pray this morning as we close that you would respond in the way that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful Lord, I'm thankful for your perfect example. Lord, I'm thankful that you have given us Jesus as a standard. And Lord, in a similar way, Lord, I look to him and I get inspiration. Lord, how great he was. And I desire as a Christian to be more like him in every area of my life. God, I know that in my own path I have failed and I have faltered, I have not become all that I would desire or that you would desire that I should be. But God, I I desire, Lord, to try. Lord, I desire that I want to, to, to be in that place of blessing with you. And Lord, I'm thankful that you have given us a sacrifice on the cross that covers all of our wrongs. That we don't have to live in a place where we're constantly under judgment. But God, that you are there with us and you are for us. But I pray this morning, or as we have this time of invitation, or that you would lead us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.